Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back to the podcast. This is episode 29 of season four. I want to give you a little bit of a heads up that next week will be our last episode of the season. And then a couple weeks after that, we're going to have a special episode to celebrate two years of Historical Fiction Unpacked. So it will be our second birthday, and I'm so excited to bring you a little bit of a special episode. We're still working on exactly what is that's going to be. But um, after that special episode, I will be taking a long break because it is needed. This, ep- this last season has been very long, so the fifth season will not begin until um, probably January. So that's what I'm planning because I need a break to work on some other projects that I have in the works. And um, I know that you guys can use that time to get caught up on episodes that you haven't listened to and hopefully come back and, and keep listening once we get going again. Now today, I'm super excited to share with you a conversation I had with Owen Pataki. We talked back in April. I'm sure a lot of you recognize his last name. His sister, Allison Pataki, is a New York Times best-selling author of historical fiction. And um, his father used to be the governor of New York State. So his last name is a recognizable one. Um, if you haven't heard of Owen specifically, he wrote a, a book with his sister, Allison, um, a few years ago. And this, his latest book, Searchers in Winter, is a continuation of that story. So it was a really great conversation. I loved talking to Owen and getting to know him. He's also a screenwriter, and um, that was interesting to learn about because I don't know a lot about screenwriting and production of films. So I greatly enjoyed talking to him, and I know you're going to love this conversation too. So here is my conversation with Owen Pataki. Owen, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me, Allison. Yeah, your latest novel, um, Searchers in Winter, released last May. Can you tell me about this book? So this is um, this is a story and a you know uh, an adventure, historical fiction adventure novel that takes place kind of right right in the middle, or at least the you know earlier stages of the Napoleonic Wars as they're kind of heating up and as France has emerged out of the French Revolution, which took place mostly in the 1790s. And in its place, this this new age of empire, this this age of that Napoleon has kind of assumed power and really left his stamp on French society. And of course, that would sort of evolve or devolve, depending on how you look at it, into the Napoleonic Wars. So this is a story that kind of began with the, some of the characters in, a, in the first book, Where the Light Falls, in 1792, during the, the reign of terror of the French Revolution. And this is a new era where our characters, our protagonists and heroes have to they find themselves in this new, exciting but you know dangerous world of of imperial politics and and you know scheming and some kind of cloak and dagger, um, really an environment and things kind of escalate and go on from there. Right now, your first foray into fiction writing, which you mentioned, um, where the light falls, but that was a joint effort with your sister Allison Pataki. So you wrote the book Where the Light Falls together. Can you tell me how that came about? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 an interesting story because she was a published author. She had had three uh previously published uh historical fiction novels from different time yeah. periods and 
this was an idea where the light falls was an idea that I had going back all the way to high school when I was in high school and, and just kind of some took some mm. some French history courses. I take I had studied French a little bit in school. My grandmother was from France, so my mom and my grandmother grew up speaking. It. So we have a little bit of a background, and I'd been exposed to Tale of Two Cities and some of the you know Count of Monte Cristo right. stories. And so it was always kind of lingering in the back of the mind. And then um, in high school, I took a course on the French Revolution. We were really exposed to it, and I just had this idea, this germ of a story that kind of came about. And over the next really decade kind of nurtured that story, that, that seed of a story into basically what, you know, the earliest embryonic form of what would become where the light falls. And I saw it originally as like a screenplay because I do, I do screenwriting and filmmaking as well. So I, I saw it kind of visually and I told my sister, Allie, and she was thinking, you know, this could be a, this could be a fun book. Maybe we should write it together. So it was actually her idea to co-write it um, into a book, into book form. So we, over the course of the next few years, she was working on other novels. I was in the army at the time. We just kind of pitched ideas back and forth of like, hey, we could open it with this. And we kind of fleshed it out chapter by chapter. And then um, over the course of about two years in 2015 into 2016, when I was out of the army and she had, we both had some time, we would, we wrote it and she wrote a draft. I would get it. I'd write it and send it back to her and she'd have it for a few months. And we just kind of went back and forth, both putting our, our, you know, our handprints literally and figuratively onto the manuscript that became the book. Wow. I want to, I'll talk more about your process of doing that later, but um, I kind of want to focus on how did that story then lead you to write Searchers in Winter? So we ended it. Yeah. Like, so, so we ended it without planning to have a sequel, but we did, we liked the story and, and the experience enough to think, you know, well, let's keep it open-ended in case there is more kind of meat on the bones here. Um, right. And the epilogue in that book, it kind of opens up, you know, the possibility of the Napoleonic era kind of pulling Jean-Luc's character in, um, which it does. So we left it open-ended, but didn't have any plans. And then when I was, um, when I was away at film school in 2015, uh, I really started to, well, it might've been, I forget the exact time period, but I just started to think of the characters and the characters, you know, still felt like they had some life in them. And as I, you know, did some kind of casual, you know, unplanned research into the the years after this, the first book ends, the, you know, Napoleon, everything I talked about, the, these, these incredible stories kept popping up and I kept seeing them in relation to the characters. And, um, without giving any like, you know, major <laughs> plot points away, the, the story of the Rothschild's fortune from Hesse Castle, that was something I read about um, in the rise of the, the Rothschild family, which was a true story based on, you know, the governor of Hesse Castle trying to, you know, scurry away, you know, secret away his nation's fortune, basically from the, the Napoleonic Imperial French army. And I, I just thought that's an incredible story. That's kind of, uh, you know, un, untold, unexplored, and the characters from the first book really felt like they kind of fit in this ongoing story um, in that from the first book into the second book. So it, it kind of unfolded over time. It wasn't necessarily planned out by any means when we wrote the first book, but it felt like a like an organic kind of um, evolution or just pro- progress from the first story to the second. Right. So how did that like the the evolution of from the French Revolution into the Napoleon Napoleonic Wars, how did that affect the characters in your story? Like you have the same characters 
moving from one time period to the next? Yeah, yeah. And again, I, w- I maybe I won't give too much away and how how they make it through <laughs> and what happens to them. But but yeah, they they survive. Um, you know, at the the French Revolution, at least the the main ones. Obviously, the ones that are in the second book survive. And I think they they all grow. They're now they were. It, they're almost like the characters in their story are almost like a mirror for like the from France and the French Revolution, in the sense that they have certain characteristics, certain, you know, of things happen to them during the revolution. And as time goes on, you know, the time between the first book and the second book, the, their problems just grow. So they, they grow, they're stronger. So like the, the, you know, for, for instance, Andre Valier in Searchers in Winter in the first book, he's a lower rank, you know, he's, he's an aristocrat. So he's in danger of being denounced as an aristocrat by the revolutionaries who are sending the, the aristocrats, the nobles to the, to the guillotine in mass. Um, So he's very much kind of this under siege character fighting for this Republican French army. That's really kind of scrappy underdogs compared to the great powers, you know, great Britain and Spain and Prussia and Austria and Russia, you know, czarist Russia, the, the French revolution is very much in its infancy. So Andre is kind of this young upstart character, whereas in book two, he's now a lieutenant colonel. You know, he has more rank, more power, and he's part of the imperial French army under Napoleon. So he's evolved and grown, but, you know, the context of him, where he is in the world and in the story, that's grown. So for Sophie and Jean-Luc, that's the case as well. Right. Okay. So I understand you you already mentioned that you were in the army, and I understand you served in Afghanistan. Um, thank you for your service, by the way. Thank you. But I'm curious, did did your military experience give you insight when you were writing about these historical wars? I know it's a very different war was very different um, in these time periods you were writing about, but was there anything that that kind of helped with? Yeah, I, I always answer that question with like a, I say yes and no. No in the sense right. like you mentioned, it, that, you know, obviously it's very different. Um Soldiers back then had to march everywhere and, you know, medical, you know, field hospitals were very crude and medical supplies were very crude. And it was a, it was a much more kind of brutal, archaic environment. Their, their yeah. food was, was totally different. So, yeah, in many ways, it would have been much, much worse. And so you, no one can really relate to that. But at the same time, there are certain, like I always say, like universal aspects of being a soldier that will probably never change unless we're in space or something. But, but yeah, there are certain experiences like, you know, leaving your family, going away to a foreign land where you, you know, it's, it's dangerous. And that's something that Mm -hmm. you can relate. Any modern soldier or Marine um, can relate to, or, you know, the types of conversations you might have, or this, you know, the certain personality types that you meet in the military. I'm sure there were, you know, you meet really, brave people. You meet people who are the opposite. You meet people who are very, you know, disciplined taskmasters. So you're, you're around that environment and that gives you a little bit of like a, a pool to draw from when you're trying to, you know, write dialogue or create a character or create, you know, the relationships between officers and enlisted. So all little things like that, that you do have a experience to draw from when you're writing the characters. But then of course, like I said, you, you don't want to put too much of yourself or your own experience in because it would have been vastly different. So there's, there's similarities to draw on though, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I mentioned, I wanted to come back to you kind of what it was like to write a book with your sister, um, who she's a well-known author of historical fiction. So yeah, I'm sure that that had its own, um, 
kind of we could un- unpack how that was for you, like your first experience writing fiction and you're doing it with your sister, but also kind of how the logistics worked. You mentioned she would she would write a, a draft. Do you mean like would you would you take turns with chapters or would you um did she write the entire thing and then you went over it or how did that all work out? Yeah, so we started out by just kind of going through, you know, we built kind of the characters, gave them, you know, traits and names and everything. And then mm-hmm. I kind of went through and gave her the the broad stroke skeleton of the story of like, this is the beginning. This is what's going to happen. This is the middle. This is, you know, all the, all these problems are going to happen. This is how I see it ending. And these are the major kind of set pieces. Um, and then, so we went through after we had done that, we went through basically chapter by chapter, just person mano y mano and just kind of, um, storyboarded or broke down each chapter. I'm like, okay, so this is going to happen. We agree on that. This is how the uh, scene will start. This is, this is how it'll end. And so we basically had the chapters broken down like, like in our notes orally for the first you know round of the, of the, of the story. And she right. went through and, and sat down and typed out the first draft, like a couple hundred pages, which was obviously to answer your question, very helpful and <laughs> very beneficial <laughs> to have prolific, successful, established author doing that. So I definitely was kind of spoiled in that sense, but the draft would change many times since then. So she did that draft and then sent it to me. So I had that document and I went through for several months. This is right after I got out of the army. So I had some free time and I had some, you know, discipline and good habits going. Um, and then I went through and, and, and start to finish every chapter page by page. I put my stamp on it, added things, took things away. So I had a turn, gave it back to her. She'd have it for a few months, did the same. And we kind of bounced it back and forth each time getting each, you know, iteration a little shorter. Um, and we did that for at least a year, I want to say, uh, kind of on and off. Um, so that's that was the process. It wasn't like I wrote these scenes and she wrote these chapters and we kind of right. split, the, split the writing 50-50. It was really, we really both kind of went through page by page and have our fingerprints on each page, which is looking back now, kind of surprising that it worked because okay? that, you know, two people who have their own opinions on stuff, the fact that we made it work means we must've gotten to compromise somehow. And I don't, I don't know how we did that. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been that compromising sense, but it worked out. Oh, that's great. And so, I mean, are you two very close? Have you, is that the kind of relationship you've always had or is it more like this was just a a one-time thing that happened to like the stars aligned and it all worked together (laughs) i mean i would say more of the second we we've always been we were the closest of of our siblings in age so we've always been kind of close and always had a similar interest in like in history and storytelling um you know she's a writer i'm a writer we but but again we do have different styles like i am I see myself more as a cinematic. I've, I've worked on screenplays. I've, I've um, went to film school. Which, um, yeah. And she's, like you said, the, the prolific author. So I think we both pr- kind of brought different angles. So like we saw it from different sides and we're able to bring different, you know, visions to it. And, and yeah, like com- the ability to compromise really helped for sure. So we've always been close, but this, this was not something we'd ever – thought about doing or done before or planned to do it just kind of, yeah, the stars did kind of align. Um, and, and we put our sibling rivalry aside for enough time to, <laughs> to finally get it done, um, figured it out. So I don't know if we'll ever do it again, but we've, we've talked about collaborating on other things. I don't know if we'll co-write 
ever again, but we've definitely, you know, share certain similarities of interest and, and projects. Right. So we think kind of similarly. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, so then what was it like then to write a book completely on your own? How how did you figure out your writing process when you were writing Searchers in Winter? Yeah, that's an interesting question because it, it was very different without having right. a you know New York Times bestselling author co-writing at least <laughs> half, half the material. So it, it was a de- it was a definite challenge, and I'm glad it happened that way. Um, she was she was Ali, my sister, was working on other projects. She was in the middle of multiple other books, so she just couldn't take on a, a whole another book. But we talked about the story and how we saw it going. And, you know, I just, I kind of briefed her on the plot and the characters because those are hers too, you know, from the first book. Um, and okay. so I, I broke it down kind of like the, the way we broke, we kind of outlined and storyboarded the first, um, the first book. And I just kind of sat down and wrote it. And um, to my surprise, I, I didn't find like I was unbalanced in one direction. Like, you know, a lot of people are like, Oh, did you write the war scenes? And she wrote the, the romance side of the plot or, you know, I, I wasn't sure how it was going to look like, am I, am I unbalanced towards do I, every other scene is a military scene or like, I can't write female characters or is a romance mm-hmm. going to be terrible. I, I, I didn't find myself kind of overwhelmed by a desire or a like propensity to, to dwell on either. I genuinely felt kind of like the the process of the first book. I cared about all the characters. I was, you know, involved in in the whole story and it it felt natural. Like it it didn't feel it was it was a challenge like I said because you're um you know, you're writing for the first time on your own a book and as as you know, that's that's a lot of work. That's that's a lot yes. of writing. <laughs> so it it can be overwhelming at times to just sit there and have to go through drafts and some days as you I'm sure you know it it doesn't flow and you're like hey I'm 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 not feeling it right now and then other times it it comes out of you whether you like it or not so it definitely was an, an adjustment to get used to it and the responsibility of having it on your own but it but it was kind of a pleasant surprise that I was able to I felt engaged with Sophie as much as Andre or Jean-Luc or felt as engaged mm. with romantic you know subplots or plot lines as I did with the military aspect stuff. So I, I did learn about myself that I'm, I'm interested in telling the whole story. I don't, I don't, I don't consider myself just a one, one genre or one trick pony. I was, I was happy to learn that I was committed equal parts to all, all facets of the story. Yeah, that's great. I'm sure that was a pleasant discovery. right? Encouraging yeah, yeah, discovery. And anytime you do something for the first time, you're not sure how it's going to go. And so you're, right. you're kind of nervous to see like, all right, is this, is this even going to work out? Am I even going to be able to finish this? So yeah, it, it was, it was a relief to get to do it, but for sure it brought in challenges that co-writing with a great author didn't, didn't experience in the first, pro- in the first book. Yeah. You mentioned you're a film, a filmmaker. And so can you tell me more about your work as a screenwriter and filmmaker? What do you what have you worked on? What is your vision for that in the future? Yeah. So I, I've, I've known for a long time going back even to like high school, college that I always had a, a passion for movies and for film and, and loved it and thought that I might do it. Um, the serving in the army kind of, I wouldn't say got in the way, but it definitely was, was a, you know, a, an experience I also kind of wanted to do while I was younger and, and, you know, had an interest in doing that. So that, that was a few years. And then after that, I went to film school for a year in London 
um, just for uh, like filmmaking where you kind of learn directing, you learn producing, you learn editing, you learn cinematography, you do acting courses with different courses. So it's just kind of an introduction to filmmaking. And I really was thinking that that is my passion. That is something that excites me. Um, just the process of filmmaking. So, um, yeah, I, I started to learn a little bit about screenwriting, a little bit about editing, and I realized that, um, you know, that that is something I definitely want to do. But at the same time, we were in the middle of writing this book. So I figured, you know, we were going to start it. We might as well finish it. Um, yeah. We didn't, you know, I never planned to write a book. That wasn't my, you know, intention in going back to college or something. But, you know, like I told you, Allie and I kind of just it, the stars aligned and it seemed like a good project to take on. So I was writing this book while I was kind of learning the art of filmmaking, which I think was probably pr- actually pretty like surprisingly helpful where you're, mm-hmm. you're seeing two different mediums to tell a story. And I think they both, I think my experience of film school, just, you know, thinking aloud here definitely helped the storytelling craft. Like it, it may be different tools, but it's the same end state yeah. where you're trying to get a good story out there. Um, right. And it's, it's likewise with screenwriting, you, you, you learn how to flesh out a character, how to give them a stronger objective and motivation and a, and a better backstory and, and have them go through a character arc and all those things absolutely while different translated into these books, you know, into br- trying to make these books come to life and make them feel authentic and, and the characters are interesting. So I think they kind of helped each other, the filmmaking and the book writing. But um, so after, after I finished this book, Searchers in Winter in, in 2019, um, COVID kind of put it, delayed it, its release for at least a yeah. year. Um, for obvious reasons, you know, we don't, we, we all know what happened during COVID. Um, mm-hmm. And so in that, during that interim, we, uh, I wrote and directed three short films um, that are available on the internet. You can see them on YouTube. Um, and I wrote, okay. I've written two screenplays in the interim and we're currently, you know, one of them is a historical fiction thriller set in, you know, the aftermath of world war two in Poland. So, so, in writing that, I definitely um, felt like my my storytelling was a little bit sharper because I wrote these books, uh, Where the Life Falls in Churches in Winter. But also, I, I got to enjoy, <laughs> let's say, the difference in medium between screenwriting and book writing. Book writing is a totally, as I'm sure you would guess, totally different animal than screenwriting, which is different from film directing. So, um that's a long winded way to say that I like all three. I like writing books. I like directing and I like screenwriting, but you know, you never, you never know what's going to come up and catch your interest in something you feel really strongly as I'm sure, you know, as a writer, you just, you got to get it out to the world. And yes. like where the life falls was, it was a book. We just, we had to get it out searches in winter. Same thing. As soon as the idea starts to, you know, catch in your mind and in your imagination, you have to get it, have to get it out. So currently I'm working on a a third book, but at the same time, I'm also kind of in my free time, you know, trying to tighten up screenplays I've written and keep the the film directing juices flowing, keep that, um, keep that going as well. So I guess I'd say it's, it's all three and whatever catches my interest and there's an opportunity to develop. That's kind of what I'm, where I'm headed. Right. Okay. So I know, pretty much nothing about 
how, where you would go, like after you wrote a screenplay, do you have the connections that this screenplay will eventually be made into a movie or is it, um, I mean, you said there are some on YouTube. Is that, I know that one was on your website. The, is it a short film of Searcher's in Winter? The film trailer. Um, And I mean, clearly you're talented just looking at that video. I mean, (laughs) I don't know. um, And I don't even know how you gather the people and, and put that together as you did. That's That's amazing. That that is an interesting story. We don't have to discuss it, but (laughs) getting, getting horses. um, Yeah. So yeah. So we like, so just to answer that question quickly aside, but we, I was very lucky. Um, My family has a farm upstate New York and the horses weren't from there. They were, they were brought in by professional um, local professional horse trainers who were, who Mm -hmm. we asked like, Hey, could we borrow your horses for an afternoon? Get, put some actors or, you know, a lot of the shots with the, the riding themselves are the owners of the horses and they're women. They're not men. Yeah. And they're in uniform with the dragoon helmets and with the Hussar outfit on um, because they're professional trainers and riders. So they offered to do that or they, they you know, they were willing to step in. Um, and we shot it on location upstate New York in, in one day and night. And we, yeah, we brought a crew from like Brooklyn and New York, mainly out of New York City um, upstate to New York and we're like, Hey, we're going to shoot this in a day. And everyone's kind of like, what are we doing up here? Is there any way we can actually pull this off? Cause people were like, man, this is, this is a lot. How are we going to shoot this in a day with horses? There's like indoor shoots. There's out, there's exteriors, interiors, there's m- obviously right. multiple different locations. Um, and the crew and the cast were just really flexible and awesome. They were just all up for it. They're like, okay, let's just do what, what do you want me to do? And the funniest part is that the, so we were shooting a walking scene with the actors on the horses. We didn't ask them to do any stunts or anything, obviously, um, but just like sit, basically walking the horses past the camera. And they got thrown off the, the horses. <laughs> the horses oh, threw no. them and ran past the camera. And the crew had to jump out of the way into like the woods. <sighs> and the horses bolted back to the barn, like out of sight. And the actors were on the ground. And I was just, we were, my, the producer and myself, or both just like, oh my goodness, <laughs> did, we just, <laughs> just, did we just paralyze an actor here? Um, they were fine. They got up. They were a little muddy, but they were like, it, it looked good on the on the uniform. Um, and they were they were totally yeah. fine. And, they, you know, they were a little, you know, startled, but they were willing to continue to finish the shoot, wrap the shoot that night. Um, so, yeah, it was just it was just kind of like a an adventurous little weekend that we got a cast and crew from New York City to upstate and and shot that. And, you know, we're able to edit it. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we did it in such a <laughs> challenging, tight window. That's, that's probably the thing I'm most proud about is that the cast yeah. and crew were able to pull it off somehow. Right. That's amazing. And then, so you, you said you've written a screenplay. Is that like a full length screenplay? Right, right. So the, the, I wrote two of the three short films, which is very helpful to just tell a story in a, in a short amount of time. And then I've written, since then, during COVID, actually, during lockdown in the earlier months of COVID, when I was, you know, yeah. no one could leave their house, I wrote the the Polish World War, just after World War II, where the Soviet army has occupied Poland, and it's based in a true, the kind of like a small massacre. And, you know, we're talking about it. This is very topical to what's happening in Ukraine in the world right now. This would, you know, this is right. a good time to get a story about against that kind of Soviet Russian aggression. But anyway, 
It's yeah. it's a feature. It's a thriller. It's kind of like a hostage rescue sniper thriller, but it's set in the context of a real historical event called the Augustov Augustal Roundup, where Poles who would you know basically for no reason they were seen as a threat to the Russian army in eastern Poland were rounded up, arrested, and many of them were sent on trucks or trains to to Russia, never to be seen again. Hundreds, thousands were rounded up. Hundreds never came back. And oh, in, in the context of how, yeah, how bad the Holocaust in World War II was, you, you don't really hear about it. It's kind of a forgotten little mini episode in a wider traumatic world war. But it's it's after the war had ended, and it was something that was very that story hadn't been told, at least not to my knowledge. So I, I saw that, and I was I was actually a friend of mine from film school that I, I knew from film school. He wanted to direct a sniper thriller that he had some ideas. He, we, we talked, we reached out on social media and I was like, Hey, I'd be willing, I'd love to sit down and take a crack at a screenplay. And so we were like, Hey, where should we set this? And we weren't, so we didn't know where we would set it. And then he and I both for whatever reason, and, and I'm, I'm sure you probably noticed in searchers in winter, there's a big Polish, um, you know, setting, at least some of the sequences are set in Poland and some of the characters are Polish so yeah. we both kind of had Poland on the brain. He had been working with some Polish production partners. So to answer your question, it is a lot about connections. Like connections really are what kind of make that industry, you know, run. So the right. fact that we knew each other, we were on the same page about wanting to tell the story, make this film, and we set it in Poland. And then I was the one who was like, hey, this Augustov roundup, true story. We can make it a fictional thriller in the context of like a kind of a hostage rescue thing so that came about wrote it during covid over the course of like i don't 10 to 12 weeks and we've been working on it ever since and it's currently to be honest kind of in like a production hell <laughs> phase where mm. we're we, we've gotten we've gotten a lot of concrete steps we've gotten some serious good commitments from partners but we're also at that phase where we're, we're trying to see where where we need to go next um so it's i would say it's it's currently somewhat stalled but we've made a lot of progress in recent in the last year so we feel good that we're going to get it made eventually. It's just we just have to find the right, you know, the right production team, the right, you know, f backer, financial backers to to kind of get it over the finish line into production. Right. Yeah. Along those, you're saying this is a good time for this story to come out about Soviet aggression. Um, you recently were able to go and help Ukrainian refugees. Do you want to say anything about that experience? Well, yeah. So we, my my dad and some of his partners have have established basically an all an existing his foundation, but they've kind of, you know, started to really build it and grow it to to be this you know fundraising humanitarian relief organization to bring relief to mm -hmm. Western Ukraine and to refugees in Hungary. Um, my dad is is you know of Hungarian descent and has a lot of friends and and you know has a network over in Hungary. So he right. and some of his friends and some of the people in the organization were just thinking kind of unofficially like, Hey, let's go over there to, to Hungary and then hopefully get into Ukraine and just see what's happening. See if, if we can help at all. Um, mm -hmm. So I was lucky enough to tag along with my dad and some of his partners and some of the backers from the organization. And it was the first trip was just, was the one I went on was just to kind of see, Hey, what, what's, how's everything going? What do you need? What do you need more of? What do you not have enough of? And, um, we met, met Ukrainian officials, Hungarian officials, and we went to the border and were actually able to cross into Ukraine for a few hours and meet refugees there and, wow. um, meet with some of the local officials. And they were, 
like, hey, we have this, but we don't have enough housing units. We don't have, you know, medical supplies readily at hand for a lot of refugees who just don't, you know, they, they need, they have medical needs like anybody does, and they're not in their hometown with a hospital or a provider. So there's a lot of things that they need, even if they're safe from bombing or war, but there's still, you know, human needs that need to be met. So anyway, that was the first trip that I was on and it was kind of a fact finding, you know, meeting trip. And then my dad went back, I guess a week ago or so, and they were actually his foundation and, and through generosity of donors were able to bring in some housing units um, and other, you know, immediate relief supplies that they need in Western Ukraine, the Transcarpathian region. So that's, that was the second trip. And it's, it's kind of ongoing, obviously it's still, uh, you know, the situation is fluid. So I think there's probably going to be a third trip that hopefully we can go on in the, in the coming months, um, at least to the border or maybe possibly to Western Ukraine. Um, and it's just kind of there, there's a need and there's not enough supply currently, and it's not getting better anytime soon. Right. It's the war is not going to be right. over, or at least there will be refugees for the foreseeable future. So it's the, luckily the foundation is kind of getting some traction, getting some, some donations to help it keep it going. So we'll yeah, that's where it's at now. And we'll see it's, we'll probably continue. That's it's wonderful that they're in a position to be able to help too. That's great. Yeah. It, re- it really is surprising how much, how quickly and how effective the, um, the George Pataki, uh, I think it's the George Pataki center.com. How, how helpful it's actually been able to be in such a short period of time because there's so much need and there, you know, there's a ton of help obviously from government and non-governmental organizations in Poland. Like that's where the majority of the refugees have been and, and, in, you know, other border countries, but in that hung- Hungary, Western Carpathian region, there's so many displaced Ukrainians from mm-hmm. Ukraine who, who aren't crossing the border into Poland or to, to Romania or something. Um, and that's the hardest part is like Ukraine has so much on their plate fighting off a Russian invasion that they, they don't Westerners aren't really going into Ukraine other than like media or fighters. So they have a lot that they need to do on the Ukrainian side of the border. Um, and so it's, we're in a position to just kind of like, you know, dip in for a little while, help out. And that's, it's kind of worth the risk, I think. Yeah, that's great. So you have, you mentioned your mom's, um, of French descent and, and you've kind of written about that, the French. So are you, have you had thoughts about writing about your Hungarian ancestry as well? I know it's not really about your French ancestry, but, um, the interest I think was, was increased because of your ancestry. But what about on your dad's side, the Hungarian, um, have you had any book ideas for that? That, Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't, to be perfectly honest, Right now, I don't have any immediate plans to do that, but I have thought about it. There are some stories. Um, there's there's a couple like kind of medieval Renaissance era Hungarian stories because they have they've had such a turbulent history with you know their neighbor the Turks, the Austrians, the the Mongols, yeah. you know the Huns. There's there's a lot of power struggles in Eastern Europe and the and the Balkan region, of course. So yeah, um, that's definitely been something we've thought about. But I don't have any immediate plans to do that. Um, my sister, Allison, wrote her second and third book were about Empress Sisi, who was uh, Austro-Hungarian empress um, right. in Vienna. 
who was also, you know, obviously the empress of, of Hungary as well as Austria. So she was in Budapest. So there's scenes in her books that are set in and around Hungary and Budapest. Um, so she's done that. She's touched on the Hung- an aspect of the Hungarian um, historical yeah. fiction legacy, let's say. But I, I haven't, and I, I don't have any immediate plans to. But I definitely wouldn't wouldn't mind, you know, setting a story in in Hungary in some way, and maybe even getting over to Budapest to film it someday. An adaptation that would be a great, that would be awesome to do. But as yeah. of right now, there's no hard plans to do that in the in the near future. Right. Okay, but you did say you're working on another book. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm actually. Yes. Um, I, don't, I probably shouldn't give away too, too much of it, but, but I will say that it is a continuation in this series where okay. one of the characters from Searchers in Winter, I won't say who, but one of them comes to the New World, who comes to uh, New Orleans, and the, and the story is set in this kind of bizarrely cosmic, like multi-linguistic, multicultural, just this, this very... Um, you know, it's kind of a potpourri of different languages and cultures of New Orleans in the early 19th century, a few years after Searchers Winter ends. And it's it's very French. It's Spanish. Um, it's just became an American state at that time. So it's it's got a eclectic, let's say, group of yeah. people thrown in the mix. And so a French character goes there. He's able to kind of get, get along with the locals because so many of them spoke French as their first language the Creole Cajun kind of people. So the story is, is it takes place a few years after surgeons in winter. It's, it's one of the characters they go to new Orleans and, you know, chaos ensues. I'll say that. Wow. Great. Um, that sounds interesting. So this is a question I ask all my guests. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? So that's, that's a very good, that's a very good question. I would say, in my opinion and in my experience, historical fiction stories bring history to life in a way that it's very difficult to do with the textbook. Um, mm-hmm. The characters just feel more human. They feel more relatable. The events, whether there's some epic battle or just you know a meeting between two historical figures or just, you know, a love story in a, in a historical context, it, it makes you care about those time, those moments in history and the people from history in a way that just kind of remembering dates on a timeline in a historical timeline doesn't stir the imagination usually. So I think when people read a novel that's set in any historical time period, whatever it is, um, and they they connect with it, and they care about the characters, and they're fast. They're you know immersed in a time period that they find interesting. That just really makes you interested in the history. It makes you re- it makes the history relatable, and I think that's a that brings people into wanting to know more about history. People will say. You know, I want to learn more about the French Revolution, or I want to hear more about this th- or that, or you know, what it was. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, a movie like Titanic. May, how many people became you know Titanic enthusiasts after they saw that right. movie because Leo and Kate Winslet fell in love on the Titanic, and that that just made that that particular. That's just a silly example, but that's just that particular moment in time became interesting. It, it, it yes. became human 
and it wasn't just oh this ship hit an iceberg and it sank and who cares it it it, it brought it to life and it felt more real so i think that's what historical fiction can do to try to get people more interested in learning actual history right yeah i agree um, so, Owen, this has been a fantastic conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? So I am on social media, Facebook. I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn, my website, owenpataki.com. And, you know, our the books are available on Amazon, uh, Searchers in Winter and Where the Light Falls. So you can look for me on my author page on Facebook. That's, that's one way to follow um, author announcements and projects we're working on and the website. And yeah, a simple Google search would probably turn something up. Right. Okay, great. Thank you so much for being with us today. Allison, thank you. This was this was great. Thanks for having me on. So friends, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. I thought it was a fascinating conversation. And as usual, I want to remind you to go look at the show notes and find the links to Owen's books and ways to follow him. They can be found in your podcatcher app or at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. So now some of the ways that you can support the show. First of all, make sure you are following or subscribed in your app so that you can receive a new episode every week. Second, go leave a star rating and review in whatever app you use. If it allows um, star ratings and reviews, please do that. It helps other lovers of historical fiction to find the show. In Apple Podcasts, it's really simple. You just scroll down the episodes and you'll come to a place where there are reviews and you can leave your own. So if you would do that, I would be grateful and um, also join our community on Facebook at the Historical Fiction Unpacked podcast group. You can search for it on Facebook or get to it from the show notes. And the same with our Instagram account. It's at Historical Fiction Unpacked. Also, if you would like to support the show monthly, we have a number of benefits you can get by doing that. You can find them at patreon.com slash Allison Treat. Make sure you put just one L in Allison. Now, as usual, I want to leave you with a quote, and this one comes from Lord Acton. History is not a burden on the memory, but an illumination of the soul. So my friends, keep reading historical fiction, and I will talk to you again next week.